Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 19th, 2020. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Amy Jacks Dean, co-pastor with Russ Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. Her sermon today is entitled, That Time I Broke the Law, Twice, and I'm Not Sorry. Thank you, choir and Mark. We have missed you the last couple of weeks. Add so much to worship. I tell you, let me say this. We're in the season of epiphany, revealing. So be asking yourself, how has God been revealed to me? How is God being revealed to me? How open am I to God's constant attempts at revealing God's self to us? And I tell you my story only with the hope that it will prompt you to take the time to comb through your own life and find your own experiences that have shaped and formed your life of faith. Two weeks ago, Ladane and Dan explored the mystical aspect of faith. And last week, Russ and I talked about the experiential aspect of faith. And today our topic is the ethical dimension of faith. So I'm going to tell you about two times that I have broken the law, and I'm not sorry about it. But I have to say, I am a law-abiding citizen. I would appreciate it if no one turns me in for these transgressions from my past. I am likely to do it again. I am the kind of rule follower, though, that like if you go to the hospital and there are elevators that say staff only, I don't get on those. I'm not the staff. I like to follow that rule. I'm even a rule follower, not just a law follower. Russ, he'll get right on that staff elevator knowing good and well he is not a member of that staff. So I'm just setting it up to say that If I decide to break this rule or this law, it must be for some sense of higher calling than my own personal gratification and making my life easier, okay? So, one of my first trips to Cuba, we were allowed, I can't remember now the exact amount of money you could take in. This was probably, I don't know, 12 years ago. And the, rule, the, the uh, regulations around what you could do going into Cuba were different than they are now. They were more stringent in many ways, though they are returning to that. And it's really aggravating. And I really wish you would talk to your congresspeople about that. So, but I digress. Um, <clears throat> we could take in, my memory is you couldn't take in more than $1,000 to give to the people. And we had about $6,000 that we wanted to give to the people, which was basically their budget for the entire year. And we had this money, and we wanted to give it to them. And the only way to give it to them was to take it in to them and give it to them. So I got one of those money belts that you wear under your clothes, and I put it on. And every time I was asked, which you're asked a lot about what you're taking in and what's your intent for going and blah, 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 Uh, what are you taking in? I'm taking in whatever you say I can take in. That's what I'm taking in. (laughs) And I did not say I'm taking in $6,000 and $6,000. I didn't say, and I'm taking in six times what you think is right for me to take in. I'm taking this money in, and I didn't feel bad about it at all. 
So we get to Cuba. We spend four days there. Me walking around with $6,000 strapped under my clothes at all times. I slept in it. I, everything. I never was without this money. And that moment on that last day when I handed $6,000, which $6,000 seems like a lot of money to me right this minute. Do you know what $6,000 sounds like to Cubans? It's a fortune. I handed them that money, and they just couldn't believe it. Their budget for a whole year, because I broke the law of the United States of America, and I'm not sorry about it. Righteous indignation, I think, is what I was feeling in that moment. So, fast forward a few years, and we decide we're going to take computers. They needed computers. So we asked, does anybody have old outdated computers that you're not using anymore? Wipe them clean. We want to take computers to Cuba. Well, the rule was you could only take one computer per person, your own personal computer you could take into Cuba. Like an American can use a computer in Cuba. There's no, you, especially then, there was no access to anything else. I guess if you wanted to type something and save it to your personal computer and hope you plug it in the wall and it doesn't blow up, you can do that. We take computers in. We had more computers than the number of people we were taking in. My sister who is 16 years older than I am, and a goody-goody. I mean, she is so honest and good and law-abiding and sweet and kind, and she's just a good person, and I love her dearly. She just, I, could, I knew this was going to be hard for her. This was going to really, righteous indignation, blah, for her. She didn't need that. And I said, I'll take your computer if you, no, no, I want to be a part of the group. I want to I want to be a team player. Okay, well, when we get to Cuba, and we, if they stop us, maybe they won't stop us. If they stop us, you just say, this is my computer. I think I had three computers. She had one. I knew this was going to be tough for her. But maybe they, they probably won't stop us. They probably won't stop us. Tom, will they stop you? They will stop you sometimes. Yes, they will stop you. So they stopped us with all these computers. And we go up to the table, and they're pulling out all the computers, and they say, are these your computers? And we say, yes, these are our computers. These are your computers. I say, yes, these are our computers. He says to my sister, this is your computer? And she looks at me and goes, this is my computer? <laughs> it's like, oh, you're terrible at this, breaking the law. So I said, you take the computers. You take them all. We don't want them. We don't need them. You take them. And he goes, no, no, no. You take the computers. You take the computers. We take the computers. We give them to all the people in Cuba. It was that moment when I said to him, called his hand, fine, you take them. Oh, no, we don't want them. We just want to give you a hard time. But that was the day that I broke a Cuban law, and I'm not sorry about it. I'm going again in March. It's highly likely I'm going to break a law again. So I'll tell you this final quick story where I didn't break the law, but it made me so mad. We, many of you have heard this story before, but for those that are new, we have a partnership with a church in Cuba. We've had it for over 15 years. Resurrection Baptist Church is our partner congregation. We know them. We've baptized them. We've ordained them. We've been a part. We go every year. Uh, I'm looking forward. I've been about three or four years since I've been. I'm looking forward to going back in March. Uh, 
but back in the day, when we first started going, Cubans could not go into the hotels where Americans were staying. They couldn't go to the rooms. They could go to the lobby, couldn't go past the rooms. We'd been traveling all day. I was really tired. We were going to go out for a nice dinner. We were just going to go in the hotel. It was the only nice place we stayed while we were there because it was for Americans, or, or not just Americans, but um, anyone internationally other than Cubans. And we were just going to freshen up, you know, wash our face, lie down. And I invited the pastor and his wife and their young son to come up to our room and just hang out in our room. And he said, no, we can't go. We can't go to your room. It's against the law. And it was that moment that you have when you have this sentence go through your head. But I'm an American. If it's my room and I'm paying for it and I want them to come, they should be able to come. But they could not. It was against the law. I'm happy to say that law has changed. They can now stay in those hotels, though they cannot afford it, most of them. Anyway, we go to dinner, and we're sitting there, and I'm just so troubled by this. And I asked the pastor's wife, where will you stay tonight? And he said, I don't know. We haven't figured that out yet. If we don't find a place to stay, we'll just sleep in the park. And it was one of those horrific moments where you say something and want to retract it and can't but know that you've said the right thing I said if you stay in the park I'm staying with you and then I'm thinking oh God please let them find somewhere to stay please please let them find somewhere to stay they found somewhere to stay I did not have to stay in the park I would have I did not want to but I would have because it was the right thing it was the moral thing it was the ethical thing to do. And that law was unethical and immoral, and it was nothing that resembled justice. As our group was traveling to our nice hotel, so plush and beautiful, I said, I'm never staying in that hotel again after tonight unless they can stay with us. We are never coming here and staying in a place that our family in Cuba can't stay with us. The next morning, I wish she was here today. The next morning, Tracy Brady got up and said to Peggy Pelton, as she got out of the shower, wrapped in her lovely robe and towel, she said, first of all, she said, I was a little bit scared of Amy last night because I've never seen that side of her, that righteous indignation side. And she said, I know Amy's right, but these towels are so great. <laughs> I will never forget that. As you consider your experience of God, I hope it include, includes always do the right thing no matter the cost. May it be so. Amen. I do hope I'm not having to make a trip to Cuba in March to visit my wife in a Cuban prison. <clears throat> The call comes easy enough for people who are angry and afraid, give us more law and order. That's easy to understand. The correlation seems obvious. More laws will make people more lawful. Harsher sentences will be a deterrent. More police and more guns and more walls and more, more, more will make us safer. It's easy to understand as are many misunderstandings and lies, easy to understand. It's just not true. What seems obvious is not always so. Correlation, 
does not mean causation. Years ago, I read that a large percentage of millionaires had their soles, uh, the soles of their shoes resold when they wore them out instead of buying new shoes. I immediately started taking my shoes across the street to the little shoe shop when I wore holes in them so I could get them resold so I could make my millions. You know, most millionaires resold their shoes, so I started resoling my shoes so I would be a millionaire. But correlation is not causation. Resoling your shoes doesn't make you rich. Maybe something about a lifestyle that says I need to watch the way I spend my money. I need to be careful about what I spend and how I save. That's what makes you a millionaire. That's what leads you to resole your shoes. But correlation does not mean causation. More law and order will make us safer, better, not so fast. After the much-hailed 1994 crime bill passed under the administration of President Bill Clinton, convictions and incarceration skyrocketed across the country. The crime bill was a dramatic increase in law and order, but in actuality, the bill served only to make more things illegal and to make punishments greater. Rather than creating order, however, the result has been tragic. Many inner city communities have been devastated. African-American homes have been decimated in the process. The incarceration rate for African-American males far exceeds that of their white counterparts, even for the same crimes. Sometime back, I read the heartbreaking statistic that more than 50% of Baltimore's black males between the ages of 18 and 35 were imprisoned. More than 50%. There were similar statistics for other major American cities. As I suspect is most often the case, more law and order, all those tough on crime tactics, do give us more lawbreakers, but do they actually make us more lawful? Do more law, does, did, did all that law and order make us any safer? Do you feel any safer today than you did in 1994? More importantly, did more laws make us more moral? Dare I even ask if more laws made us more compassionate, more understanding? Did more law and order make us more loving, more forgiving, more caring, more neighborly? All those things Jesus teaches us to be. Michael Eric Dyson's 2017 book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America, is as hard as any truth I have ever read. I commend it to you, but put on your seatbelts before you read. Dyson pulls no punches, and more than a few white folks have been offended by his brutally prophetic stance. In a broad conversation about my topic for this morning, Dyson quotes a journalist named Leon Wolfe who says there is a reality we don't often talk about, that societies are held together less by laws and force and threats of force than we are held together by ethereal and fragile concepts like mutual respect and belief in the justice of the system 
itself. Do more laws hold us together or more respect for one another? Do laws hold us together or a belief in the justice of the laws themselves? If citizens do not believe the laws represent justice to begin with, they are not likely to abide by those laws. Amy Dean, case in point. And that kind of law and order will never bring true peace and harmony. Even if the citizens are beaten down by them, knuckling under the pain for a short while. This weekend, as we remember the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we remember the hard reality of this truth. It was through King's leadership of nonviolent resistance, civil disobedience against a host of unjust laws that those laws were eventually overturned. If we want honest justice, we will need something better, stronger, more powerful than law and order. We will need all those things Jesus taught us, compassion and understanding, forgiveness and care, and a neighborly attitude toward our friends and our so-called enemies. Now, I believe all those things can be written into the policies of a system of justice in this country, but it will take more vision and wisdom and a whole lot more courage than any of our leaders are offering us today. We should not expect Democrats to understand this. And as strongly as it is part of the GOP platform, we will not get biblical justice from that side of the aisle either. No, the kind of justice the Bible proposes, the law Jesus followed, will not be found in American political life or civil law. Justice requires a different kind of thinking altogether, a different kind of law. We won't get it from either side of the aisle, but we should hear it consistently, loudly, unwaveringly from the Christian church in America. I don't expect any president of the United States to speak for Jesus, but is it too much to ask that Christians do? His way and other perspective is what we are supposed to offer the world. People of faith are supposed to demand a different kind of justice, not just to prop up the platforms of worldly law and order. But this is a tricky topic, isn't it? I'm not suggesting anarchy, that we do not need laws or law enforcement. Sadly, we do. If I have said it once, I have said a hundred times, I cannot imagine having to put on a bulletproof vest to come to my job every day. The work of those who enforce the laws of this land is bold and courageous. It is necessary. It is filled with honor. We need laws. The Bible also understands the need for law There's not a text of Scripture more important for the Abrahamic religions than the record of those Ten Commandments. And when you look closely at them, what you find is not frivolous, unbending legalism, but common sense, decency, honor, what might be called natural law, merciful law etched in stone, honor, mystery have no other gods before you. 
Value life. Thou shalt not murder. Respect the sexual relationship. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Recognize the need for rest and rhythm to each week. Honor the Sabbath. It all makes sense. Even for non-religious folks, it ought to make sense. Sacred mystery, life, relationship, rest. The commandments are not rules for sanctimonious churchgoers. They are very basic codes, a law for living. Breaking that law need not be punished by God. The consequences of breaking the law is punishment enough. It's not enough to say we need the law. It's that life is actually inseparable from that law. In his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey tells this story. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported light bearing on the starboard bow. He'd seen a, a ship on the right side. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain called out. The, the lookout replied, it's steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with the ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal to that ship, we are on a collision course, advise that you change course 20 degrees. Back came a signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, tell him this, I am a captain, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. Back came the word, I am a seaman second class. I command that you change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, I am a battleship, change course 20 degrees. And back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse. <laughs> the battleship changed course. There is a higher law. It is intrinsic to life. It is our lighthouse. It's the mercy that God wrote into every unsoiled heart. It's all we really need. Until the kingdom comes, however, we will also rely on the law of the land. And God is counting on people of faith to remember the relationship between the two. Law and order will never bring true justice. Only we can do that. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. 
Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.